Welcome to Ask of Expert, brought to you by the team at Vexit.com. Our bi-weekly series is the podcast helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's this week's host, Polly Craig. Well, hello and welcome. Thank you again for joining us. Okay, I'm just going to say fasten your seatbelt because today we're driving head on into a topic that quite frankly, we owe it to ourselves to discover more about prenups, interspousal agreements, and why it's important to include them in our succession and our estate planning. Just before we get started, as a reminder to our listeners, our guest today has provided some really good reference material, and you can find it at vexit.com forward slash podcast. That's vexit with two X's, and you can find it all there. When we think and talk about the future of our businesses, it usually is about growth and expansion. Rarely do we think about things like family divorce or separation and how that could impact our businesses and our lives. Today, our guest has vast experience in working with businesses that have spanned generations. As a partner at Stevenson Hood Thornton Bobier, Kim Visram specializes in family law and works closely with her corporate colleagues who focus on business and tax law. Some notable cases Kim has worked on involve passing legacy businesses from one generation to the next. As divorce rates have risen steadily in recent decades, she's seen firsthand how this has rocked the world of ag business and the families that have built these companies. Today, she brings her expertise to show and shed light on succession planning and how to protect your business should a relationship not go according to plan. As a lawyer and a mediator, Kim has an outstanding perspective on succession planning. We're so pleased to have you with us today. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I just know that this is going to be a great episode. And just with what you provided with us, some material that we're going to be able to reference, let's just start off by, can we explain what the difference is between a prenuptial agreement, a cohabitation agreement, and then how these agreements become part of our plan moving forward? Sure. So there's a lot of different terminology that gets thrown around when we're talking about these agreements. We hear the term prenuptial agreement, antenuptial agreement, cohabitation agreement, interspousal agreement. And really it comes down to it means this, they all kind of mean the same thing. It's an agreement between people who are in a spousal relationship that set out what are the rules that pertain to that relationship in the event that there is a breakdown or potentially a death of one of the parties, and how do the couple want to structure their own affairs in the event of one of those events occurring so that the law that may be applicable in their jurisdiction isn't strictly applied to them. So for parties that don't have an agreement of any sort, in the event of a separation or a divorce, they're stuck with the legislation. So each province in Canada has legislation that deals with division of assets upon a marital breakdown or a spousal relationship breakdown. And if you don't like that law, the only way to essentially say, hey, I don't want that law to apply to me and my relationship is to put an agreement in place with your spouse. So depending on, are you getting legally married? And that, you know, we refer to that often as a prenuptial agreement because it's pre-marriage. But, you know, you can enter these agreements if you don't ever intend to get legally married. Again, our laws in a lot of jurisdictions have this magic date. 
So for example, so I'm in Saskatchewan and our legislation provides that after two years of cohabitating in a spousal-like relationship, you have the same legal rights and responsibilities as a legally married couple. So even though you don't maybe intend to ever enter that formal stage of marriage, because the law says you've lived together as spouses for two years, you are now treated the same as if you're married. So then you might look at putting a cohabitation agreement in place. Um, the other term I had mentioned was antinuptial. So sometimes we do planning with people who are already married. And this comes up a lot when um, we're looking at doing things like succession planning or estate planning, moving assets from generation to generation, because maybe that means that a couple who is already married is about to receive a large gift or a large inheritance. So we want to do some planning, even though they're already married. So there's really no right or wrong time that these agreements can be put into place. And the different terminologies that you might hear really refers to well, what is the nature of that specific relationship or what is the timing. But again, it all kind of boils down to the same thing. It's an agreement between spouses as to what they want to happen in the event that their relationship breaks down. When we talk about the, uh, you know, preying up with the intention of getting married or not getting married, or living in a spousal-like relationship? What if it's just two friends that move in together? Where's the line drawn between whether yeah. you are cohabitating as spouses or, or spouse-like versus just being friends? So that can be you know, a bit of a complicated question in that there's a lot of different factors that we can look at when we're essentially analyzing a relationship to say, yeah, are these people roommates or are they spouses? And so the legislation doesn't provide us with a clear answer to that question. And generally, at least in my jurisdiction in Saskatchewan, that's developed through our case law with courts making determinations based on, well, well is this relationship a spousal-like relationship or is it a platonic relationship or, or what is it? And so they look at factors like, you know, how do the couple um, or how do the people portray themselves to the public, you know, or do they refer to each other as spouses? Where do they each have their own bedroom or do they, they share a bedroom? Who, how do they divide up duties in the house, right? Like does one person generally cook the meals and they sit down and eat meals together? Do they do their laundry together? All of those little factors, um, you know, can kind of build the analysis as to, again, at what point does this cross over into you are now living as spouses, whether you maybe intend to or not. So sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to be common law. But if all of those factors that the court can consider suggest that you are cohabitating as spouses, even if you don't personally think that you're common law, somebody might tell you otherwise. Yeah, and that's part of the tricky stuff here is that, again, you have so much personal choice about, you know, who do you enter a relationship with and what do you share with that person? But as soon as you enter into this defined spousal relationship, the law then puts these responsibilities on you that you are frankly stuck with unless you have some sort of agreement that gives you some leeway or protection otherwise. Prenup is pre, obviously. And and as you said, and let's dive quickly into the, the business side of things. And 
you know, we talked about you specialize and work a lot in the ag sector. And I think it would be really interesting. We can talk about um, a family relationship owning a farm and, and succession flam- uh, planning for that. But is that different because there's land involved or does it apply the same to any business that may not have property attached to it? I think I think it applies to to any sort of business, um, but more so those businesses that have those large capital assets. So a lot of time I get brought into corporate um, or estate succession planning when maybe, you know, mom and dad have operated a business or run a farm for 30, 40 years and they're considering retirement and part of their retirement or their succession planning is maybe to bring the the next generation um, into the business. So whether that's bringing them in as a shareholder um, in a corporation or bringing them in as a shareholder in a family farm or maybe starting to transfer assets to the next generation, the whole goal of that process is to preserve what mom and dad have built up over their lifetime and pass that and preserve that to the next generation. So that then raises the question of, okay, well, then when the next generation receives that asset, is it going to be potentially subject to a family property claim if the son or the daughter or whoever the assets are passed down to finds themselves in a situation where they are separating or divorcing from their spouse? So this is an area where You know, it is important to note that each jurisdiction has their own laws. And in some jurisdictions, um, gifts or inheritances are not considered shareable family property. But in my jurisdiction, they are. So even if a child receives a substantial gift within a corporation or an inheritance where they inherit maybe a a corporation or shares or inherit land, that's all potentially subject to division in the event that their personal relationship breaks down. So when mom and dad are having these discussions about, well, how do we pass our our wealth or pass our successful business down to the next generation? I think it's fair to assume that their goal is not going to be to have half of that walk out the door in the event that their spouse finds themselves um, going through a separation or a divorce. Well, I was just going to say, you know, and you you give a really good example where we talk about, uh, you know, Dave being the son uh, of the family. Can you just step us through that? Because I think it was really uh, well explained that had things been done in advance, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about how do you actually approach this uh, with family members, uh, because it's such an emotional and uh, touchy subject. Um, shall we say. So, and I think this example is where mom and dad own a family farm and uh, they're doing their planning. Yeah. So this is one of the the examples that, you know, I was referring to that this can become even more important when we're looking at potential succession planning that involves really, you know, valuable capital assets such as land um, or equipment that's really vital to the business. So, In the example that I had um, provided in in one of the articles, um, we talk about mom and dad owning a farm. And, you know, mom and dad want to transfer that farm to their son. And I've called him Dave. And and Dave is married to a lady named Mary. 
And so mom and dad decide that they want to give their farm to Dave. And so they engage in this succession planning. They spend lots of time and energy and effort and money transitioning the farm down to Dave. They keep it in Dave's name. They intend only for Dave to have it. And they think everything is great. But if Dave doesn't enter into an interspousal agreement with Mary, if Dave and Mary later separate, that family farm is now family property between Dave and Mary that becomes subject to division. And so some people assume that, you know, well, Dave didn't pay anything for that property. Dave got that as a gift from his mom and dad, or Dave got it as an inheritance, or it's only in Dave's name. So why would Mary have a claim to it? And again, it comes back to the fact that because that's what the legislation, at least in Saskatchewan, says. Property that's acquired during the spousal relationship is shareable family property in the event of a separation or a divorce. And it doesn't matter if Dave receives that property in his personal name. It doesn't matter if Dave receives shares in a corporation. It doesn't matter if Dave received it through, you know, if he became, you know, a, a trustee of a trust. It's all family property that goes on the list. So what does that mean? So really generally in Saskatchewan, when a couple is separating, we make a list. We say, what do you own? What do you owe? Let's put everything on that list. So mom and dad's farm is now going on the list. And let's, I think in the example, I said farm worth about $10 million. So what if Dave and Mary didn't have any other assets? This is really only their key item now to be divided. Well, in Saskatchewan, our starting point under our legislation is generally property is divided equally. So we've got a $10 million farm that was gifted to Dave from his parents. Dave and Mary are now going through a divorce. Well, Mary has a $5 million claim, just if we're using round figures here. Of course, there may be adjustments for tax and, and lots of other factors, but just to try to keep it a simple round number. Mary now has a $5 million claim against Dave because she's entitled to half of that asset under the family property legislation. So this obviously can create a number of issues because now what is Dave going to do? Well, Dave has a couple options. He could give half the farm to Mary and Mary can do what she wants with it. He could sell the farm or a portion of the farm to generate funds to pay Mary out, or he can potentially, and this isn't a, a guarantee, go and obtain financing and take on a $5 million debt to pay Mary out cash. And I find that a lot of situations, especially farming situations, there isn't necessarily the ability to go and borrow um, significant amounts of money. So then often we find people that they're faced with one of the first two choices. And unfortunately, it's usually the second choice of things need to be sold. So now as a result of Mary and Dave divorcing, half of that family farm that mom and dad have worked so hard to build up and their goal was to pass down to future generations is being sold to satisfy a family property claim. And so had they had a either a prenuptial agreement or in this case a, what did you call it, an interspousal agreement, that that would have prevented this from happening. And and then I guess, too, that often people would stay together and be unhappy because they would want, rather than dealing with this type of thing, 
uh, yeah. you know, if and and it it uh, it's a vicious circle. Now, another question would be: uh, Would this be the same thing? You know, I can think of family cottages, uh, family businesses, those types of things. If somebody wants to uh, pass along their family cottage, can that be done in an agreement? Um, so that you know, if if my kids are single, but then they get married later down the road and they get divorced, then if there's no agreement in place, half the cottage would go to that the spouse. Yeah, so it's always a, a question of timing. Um, you know, obviously, if you provide a gift or your child receives an inheritance prior to entering a spousal relationship when they're single, there can be some different rules that apply. But again, it's always important then to remind your child that should they find themselves living with a potential spouse or looking to get married, that they should be having these conversations about what is shareable and what is not. And I always like to emphasize to people that there is no, like these agreements are not cookie cutter. It's not one size fits all. It's what is important to you as the couple. And, you know, that's why I always try to emphasize to people that these are not bad things, right? Like prenups have such a bad rap to them that it's like, oh, there's this stigma attached to it that, oh, if you're getting a prenup, that means that you don't really trust your partner or you don't love your partner or you think your relationship isn't going to last. And it's, you know, it's such a negative thing to do. And I always try to educate my clients that it's actually the opposite. It's probably one of the best things you can do when you're entering a relationship. And you you had a good example uh, that you gave where you don't plan for your house to burn down, yet you do buy insurance. Exactly. And, you know, you're okay with having a will in the case of death, so why not have agreements in place of living? Exactly. And, like, if we go back to our example about Dave and Mary, so Dave, when Dave's parents are having these discussions with their legal and accounting and financial advisors, um, you know, obviously transitioning a family farm that has significant value. It's not something that just happens overnight, right? There's lots of planning that's done with that. So what we do often at my firm is we encourage everybody to come to the table, right? So let's bring Dave and Mary to the table for these discussions about the fact that mom and dad are transferring this asset. And if Dave and Mary are in a good place in their marriage at that time, Generally, I think it's fair to assume that if it's presented in the correct way and the idea is, okay, look, we want to transfer this $10 million farm to Dave, but because it's the farm that we mom and dad have built up over time, we want to ensure that it stays in the family. And it's not that we don't trust you, Mary. Um, It's not that we think that your, you know, your marriage to Dave is not going to succeed, but we want that house insurance in place, right? In case there is a fire. And so we can then put an agreement in place between Dave and Mary that only deals with that one particular asset. So everything that Dave and Mary have built on their own, um, anything that's in their personal names that had nothing to do with mom and dad, that had everything to do with them as a couple, that can all still get divided. But we can do these agreements to say, okay, well, this particular asset or this particular, you know, farm or piece of land or family cabin or your inheritance 
that we're going to build some protection around so that if there is a separation, that particular item just doesn't go on that list. It's off the table. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. That's really good. And what I heard you say as well in the the beginning was to bring someone in like yourself who really is more of a facilitator. You know, mediator sometimes has a connotation of that there's there's two sides where this is really somebody to help facilitate what is in everyone's best interest and doing it potentially uh, in advance is the best way. Uh, Sometimes, obviously, you're brought in after the fact and and are there is there any guidance or or sort of ways that people can uh, approach things if they've waited too long if both sides are willing and wanting to put an agreement in place it's never too late <laughs> um, but again with any sort of agreement or contract the key is that both sides have to agree right so we do have situations where for example people get married Therefore, the right or the ability to share in family property has already vested. So if Dave's parents go ahead and transfer the farm to Dave on the assumption that Dave and Mary are going to enter this agreement and then Mary says, no way, there's not a lot they can do. Right. Because if Mary says no, Dave can't force Mary into an agreement. So that's why it's really important to have these discussions at the start of maybe potentially succession planning or when the discussions are being had with mom and dad, because we want to ensure that interspousal agreement gets put in place before mom and dad actually transfer the asset to Dave. Because like I said, if they go ahead and transfer it, assuming this interspousal agreement is going to get signed and it doesn't, even though they never intended Mary to have a claim, she still has one. So if we look at businesses and uh, potentially you may have some family members that are involved in the business, but they may not be in the leadership roles. They may not, but parents may own the majority, they pass, and all of a sudden the children inherit the ownership of the business but they're not at that senior level. Is it the same type of agreements that should go in place for businesses who have families involved, but that aren't actually running the business? Yeah, because it's still going to be an interest. It's still a property interest. If you hold, even if you hold 1% shares, it's still an interest uh, in property that's going to go on that list. The other thing that it does is as soon as you have an interest in that business, it opens the entire business up for things like disclosure requests. Right. So we see this a lot with things like family trusts or corporations where parents say, well, you know, I want to issue my kid five percent shares and they're not they're not going to have, you know, any um, majority say or they're not going to be a director. I just want to give them, you know, a small amount of shares. And that's fine. But then if that child is going through a family law matter or separation, you know, disclosure pertaining to your corporation is now relevant and and is going to be required to be produced. 
So sometimes we can, you know, we specifically address that in interspousal agreements too, to just close the door on disclosure to, you know, really a corporation that's owned and operated by mom and dad. And this child just happens to have a small interest in it because mom and dad gave that to them. So best timing on that as well would be well in advance and clearly have the understanding what is it that the parents are trying to achieve and and perhaps that's not the best route to take uh, because then you can involve insurance and and other different policies and agreements put in place that maybe are outside dealing with shares of a business. Yeah, and I always think, you know, it's best to have these conversations up front. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, it's it's easier to have the conversations generally when the couple is happy and they're together, right? You know, they're still they're still tough. You know, I've worked with a lot of couples where you can you can sense the tension between them because it's not a fun thing to talk about, right? And part of my job is to kind of put the hard scenarios to them. You know, somebody might say, you know what, you know, Dave might say, you know what, I'd be happy, you know, I'd be happy to give Mary part of the farm. And then you kind of start pushing and giving the examples about, okay, well, would it make a difference to you if it was your decision to end the marriage or if it was her decision? You know, if she left you, would you still be willing to let her leave with half the farm? And usually very quickly people say, well, no, 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 not in that, not in that situation. Right. So when I'm working with people, I can kind of give them some, you know, examples to think about and some scenarios to discuss. And I find that when I'm working with them jointly, we're able to talk about those examples and get past them easier than if I'm simply working with one side and the other side has a separate lawyer. I find that that usually just sets the stage um, of making a more adversarial process from the start. And in my opinion, these agreements, they shouldn't be adversarial. You should have a collective goal of putting some ground rules in or or laying the groundwork for some rules in place to say, look, we love each other. We want to be in this relationship. We hope that it works out. But if it doesn't, let's minimize the potential for us to find ourselves in a big, nasty divorce so that we can go our separate ways and move on. Absolutely. And I'm imagining now, uh, you know, people are used to dealing on on Zoom and other different uh, webinar, whatever we call these things that that we talk (laughs) on. It does help facilitate, I'm sure. Like, there's no reason why people can't connect and and have the screen up, have someone like yourself there to to help facilitate it and set the stage because it can be a win-win. And there's nothing worse than dealing with the unknown and not having the wishes of whoever the original owners of whether it's a business or or family farm or what have you um you know emotions do a crazy thing to our headspace yeah i had seen a statistic i think the other day that it was talking about you know that fights over finances are still one of the Um, predominant reasons that lead, you know, couples to choosing to divorce. And so I think, you know, also talking about these agreements at the start of your relationship is also important for, you know, just assessing financial compatibility with somebody, right? That, you know, if you're going into a relationship with somebody and you say, 
you know, I'd like to enter into an interspousal agreement so that we each can keep our, our respective inheritances. And the other side says, no, I don't think so. I think I'd like to take your inheritance. Well, maybe you'd like to know that at the start of your relationship, not at the end. Very good point. Uh, you know, it, it's often we have blinders on in certain areas of our lives. So to look at it straight on is important. You know, one of the things you also mentioned that, you know, the interspousal contract could be entered into any time. It doesn't have to be prior to marriage, but there does have to be that agreement. So that discussion up front um, is, is just so vital. And you've provided us with some great pieces. And again, I'm just going to suggest that people go and download them and, and read them. What are some things that you'd like to touch on that we haven't covered off today? You know, again, just to emphasize, the biggest thing is that these agreements are not a bad thing. I think when people think of prenups, they think of, you know, a document being shoved in the limo on the way to the, the chapel to get married. And they're always, you know, in situations where there's a gold digger involved or, again, they just have such a bad reputation to them. And, you know, I really try to peel that back and tell people that, again, these are not a bad thing, especially when you're looking at things like succession planning or bringing someone into a family business or transitioning a family farm, you know, you as mom and dad or whatever, whoever is the one doing the transitioning, you know, you've worked your entire life to build this asset and you want to pass that on to future generations. You don't want to have put somebody in a position where now they've received this corporation or received this farm and they're in a position where now they have to just give it away or or sell it because a, a relationship broke down. So it can be, you know, an additional kind of a more emotional part of the planning to have these discussions, but having them up front is so important. And, you know, adding that additional time and cost to the upfront planning is potentially going to save, quite honestly, could save hundreds of thousands of dollars if there's now a family property claim against a $10 million farm that is a disputed action. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, why don't I have to get this agreement up front? Another couple thousand bucks. Like, I don't really need it. Do yourself a favor, have the discussion, look at getting the agreement. In the long run, if that house burns down, you will be glad you have that insurance in place. Absolutely. And communication and transparency. It's a win-win. There's really no downside if you're prepared for what the intentions of the people that are involved uh, really are. Get the right people on your team and make sure that you get the agreements in place that will help you have a long-lasting and happier, better life. Exactly. Well, Kim, it's been a great honor having you with us today. And I just have one more question because as you were talking, I was thinking, well, I wonder what would happen. So in a situation where one spouse passes away, the remaining spouse has everything, they get remarried, and then that spouse passes away. Does all of that family property go to the new spouse? and bypasses the kids if there's no agreement in place? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so again, it, it's going to depend. It's going to depend on what the estate planning is for those respective people and how um, the assets pass. 
But often, you know, people's estate plan or if they don't have a will, and again, then they're stuck with what the default in the legislation is, is that, yeah, everything goes often to the spouse. And so that's another really um, common reason why I engage with people who are maybe entering a second marriage or who are at a later stage in their life, who have children um, from a previous relationship, and they're getting together again, in a new spousal relationship, and they've already built up assets. And it's important that their children um, are the ultimate recipients of those assets. And so often we'll do an agreement that again says that, and we can do this in conjunction with their estate planning to say, well, in the event of a separation, this is what happens with their assets. In the event of a death, this is what happens with their assets to ensure that if the ultimate goal is to preserve each each respective spouse's assets for their own children, that that's accomplished. Great. Well, it's good to know. And again, that advanced planning and thinking through and and really treating our lives like we would our businesses, you know, put the proper things in place to make sure that things are cared for. And um, this has been a really good discussion. I think that it's the beginning of something that people will look to. And if just one person can go out and contact their professional to get their affairs in order and the right agreements in place, uh, that will have a huge impact on the rest of their lives. So thank you for being here today. Thank you again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was a lot of great information from this week's expert, Kim Visram with Stevenson Hood Thornton Bovier. And be sure and go to vexit.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and some super valuable material that Kim's provided for you. And we'd love for you to continue exploring and join in on all our conversations taking place throughout social media channels everywhere. Send us topics that you'd like covered, or maybe there's a problem you'd like solved. You can reach us at podcast at vexit.com. We're here to help you live your best life by giving access to knowledge and expertise you can trust while navigating through life's important moments. Then, when the time comes and you're looking for the right professional, why not try out Vexit's matching tool? It's free and it's actually fun. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. The Ask a Vexpert podcast is a production of Vexit and distributed globally by the Sound Off Media Company. Looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.